John chapter 13. We're in John 13. Some of you have been here long enough to know that when I start a new chapter, I'm intimidated, and rightly so, and sometimes so intimidated, I, I don't even want to go in it. And so I take a few weeks off and study other, uh, or study the passages beforehand and get more intimidated. And then once I get in the chapter, I don't want it to end. I think I'm already there with chapter 13. I didn't want to get in it, but now I don't want it to end. It's the end, toward the end of our Lord's life here on the earth, probably uh, Thursday night before his death on Friday. He is taking his disciples, they go to this upper room, and he gives them this, what men call, some men call, this farewell discourse. He is preparing his disciples for his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, He's going back to the Father in his current session. He's going to be gone. He's not going to leave them orphans. He's going to send the helper, you know, all that from John 14, 15, and 16. It's all together, verses, that is, chapters 13 through 17 are all a a unit in one sense, occurring at the same time. In this first section, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, for us, that's... It seems like uh, another culture. Well, it is. (laughs) Uh, Foot washing was done by servants, usually the lower-tiered servant, especially when uh, people had already bathed, then they put their sandals or whatever they called them on, and walked to uh, a meal like this one. They would get soil on their feet, and before they ate, somebody would wash their feet. It was very culturally accepted. But what was not normal in this situation is that the lessers, I'll call the disciples the lessers, should have been fighting each other in order to wash the feet of the greater, the Lord. But instead, like last week, Peter says, you're not washing my feet ever unto eternity. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Then my head, my hands, and my, you know, my whole body. Uh, I think I said it last week. Peter, could you just be quiet? Something's going on here. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word became flesh, is almost to the point of death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and current session, and he's instructing his disciples in a private place, just the 12 and Jesus. It's very um, somber, sober, a holy scene that we are privileged to peek into. I'm going to read John chapter 13, uh, the first 17 verses. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, so you might want to pay special attention when I get there. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose 
from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Actually, we should read it this way. Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, this is probably an outer garment, and sat down again, he said to them. So he descended to their feet, and then he ascends to the table and he starts teaching them. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? A rhetorical question. It's time for them not to answer it audibly, but to listen. Maybe they learned from Peter. He kind of talked a little too much there in that earlier section. Do you know what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your, notice what he does here. He inverts the order. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, an interesting passage. Last week, when I gave the review, I just focused on one verse. I'm going to do the same thing to review from last week. Just focus on verse 10 to kind of set the context because we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Verse 10 says, Jesus said to him, Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. Now, last week I noted two words here, bathed and wash. The word bathed can be understood this way. He who has been bathed is in the perpetual state of, remember the word, bathedness. So there's something about the past experience of bathed ones that stays with them. Does that mean they need to never physically bathe again? He's not talking exclusively about physical bathing, okay? Something is more deeper. There is symbolism going on here. In other words, our Lord is saying bathed refers to an act in the past, and it is broader and more inclusive than wash. If one has been bathed, he need not be rebathed because completely clean, as Jesus said, but he does need to wash his feet. Now, what does all that signify? 
If you were here last week, you know, he who has been renovated in the soul does not need that radical renovation to be repeated, but he does, does need periodic cleansing due to the daily blemishes of life as a Christian. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Our Lord is saying that if one has been regenerated, cleansed from damning guilt, all that one needs as a believer is daily forgiveness of new sins, which are committed daily and more often than we realize. Remember J.C. Ryle's words, he that is pardoned and justified by me is entirely washed from all his sins and only needs the daily forgiveness of the daily defilement he contracts in traveling through a sinful world. So those were part of the comments on verse 10 last week. There's, there's, a, there's a symbolism going on here with this language and with the actions of our Lord. Remember, quoting somebody. It's an enacted parable. In other words, he is acting in a certain way, but those, that action is a sign that signifies other actions of the same person, but in a different way. So the incarnation, we could say, is, I have come down from heaven. He came down from the head of the table to serve. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a, a big picture statement about the incarnate purpose of the incarnation. This is a miniature picture of that. In using the action of foot washing. But now we have a transition in one sense. We have a dialogue last week through verse 11. And now we have a monologue. If you have a red letter Bible, you know, it's all red letters now. By the way, I teach my students, and you're my students in one sense, you're disciples. Um, read the red letters, if you have a red letter, and pay attention. Pay careful attention, especially how Jesus utilizes uh, language from the Old Testament, but also how he has this gift of economizing truth in, in pithy statements, shorter words. So now we have this monologue after he washes their feet. So verses 6 through 11 last week contained a back and forth between our Lord and Peter and a closing comment by the apostle. But our passage today contains mostly words spoken by our Lord. That's why I call it a monologue. Uh, one, mono, uh, logos, word, one speaker of words. Dialogue would be two. Trialogue would be three. Quadrilogue would be four. Okay, so this is a monologue. Now notice, first of all, the, the context of the monologue. First part of verse 12. So when he had washed his feet, okay, context here, wash their feet. He finishes washing their feet. Who's their feet? All the disciples. If you're thinking, you're going, wait a minute, he didn't, my Jesus ain't going to wash Judas' feet. He washed Judas' feet as well. In full knowledge of who he was and what he was going to do. We'll, we'll learn something about that in a second. So this is the context. So when he had washed their feet, finishes down there, goes back, gets his garment, takes, 
taken his garment and sat down, he said to them. So once the feet of all the disciples present were washed, our Lord assumes his position at the table. He went down from it to serve. Now he ascends back to it to teach. The disciples are silent. Silence at this point on the part of the disciples is a good move, I think. Because if we're disciples other than Peter, and we're watching the scene that I preached on last week, we're going, Peter, you know, zip it. This is not going well for you. Why do you keep doing this kind of stuff? Why do you put your foot in your mouth so often? Well, now they're silent. It's time to hear from the Lord. Now let's look at the content of this monologue. That's the rest of the passage. First, at the end of verse 12, we have a rhetorical question posed by our Lord. Rhetorical question is a question thrown out there, not intending an answer, but intending to be answered by the one who speaks it to further teach those who the question was posed to. Do you know what I have done to you? So he wants them to think about what he did. But he doesn't intend for them to answer the question. He's going to answer the question. One man puts it this way, understanding and intelligent perception of all we do in religion should be sought after and valued by all true Christians. There is no real religion in blind devotion. Do you know what I have done to you? I want you to know something. So fortunately, our Lord answers his own question in a very instructive manner. And that brings us to verses 13 through 17, which I think are a unit. We have our Lord's answer to his question, okay? Do you know what I've done to you? Here's his answer. He answers his question first with an assertion. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. So both teacher, sometimes rabbi, elsewhere, and Lord are titles of respect and honor. Teacher or rabbi was used often in that day. Lord, not so much. But it was used, especially with reference to Jesus. And here Jesus is basically saying, you are right to call me both teacher, rabbi, in a, in a category unlike anyone else. And you are right to call me Lord. Though Lord can signify respect merely for a superior, I think it means More than that, based on the next verse and elsewhere in the Gospels. So so you can say, uh, you know, Sarah called Abraham what? Lord. We have friends in another state. The wife calls her husband my Lord from that text. Do you think Sarah calling Abraham Lord means Abraham was God, because the word Lord is used for God as well. And you're right to say no. 
So you can use that term that way, but it's used in another way, especially with reference to the Lord Jesus in several places throughout the New Testament. Anyway, I think it's more than just uh, a term of respect. Second, in verse 14, he presents a condition and an inference. Watch what happens. If, here's condition, if I then, now watch what happens, your Lord and teacher, not teacher and Lord, but Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So I said condition and inference. Note the condition first. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. So our Lord inverts the order of the titles. He is their sovereign. He is their master, Lord, who happens to teach them as well. But note secondly the inference. He draws, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So if the greater me, not me, capital M, Jesus, the Lord, then certainly the lesser, you disciples. If I, the greater, acted in a self-sacrificial manner toward you, the lesser, you ought to do the same toward other lessers. Did you realize if you're a disciple of Christ, you're a lesser? So this is a lesson for lessers. Ryle says, our Lord would have us love others so much that we should delight to do anything which can promote their happiness. We ought to rejoice in doing kindnesses, even in little things. We ought to count it a pleasure to lessen sorrow and multiply joy, even when it costs us some self-sacrifice and self-denial. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Do you think Jesus went down there mumbling under his breath? Yeah, okay, I'll have to do this. You get a text, uh, dear brother, dear sister, um, we're trying to serve one of the saints who's sick, who's had a surgery. We want to provide meals for two weeks. And you're going, which saint is it? None of us ever do anything like that. A meal? You realize what it takes for me to create a meal just for my own family, let alone somebody else? I didn't sign up for this. Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. From the greater to the less, it's a no-brainer. And then verse 15, he gives a reason for the inference. For, okay, the inference is this, you ought to wash one another's feet. If I did, the greater, and you are the lesser, therefore you ought to wash one another's feet. Why? For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, what does this mean? Is our Lord instituting a third sacrament? Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot washing. Perpetually, between the two advents of our Lord, the church has three sacraments, 
Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot washing. It, is that what's happening here? Now, some throughout the history of church, the church has taken it that way. But I think at least for three reasons, we should not. First, because it seems that it would be a sin not to wear sandals so as to get our feet dirty and in need of washing. Okay, if it's a perpetual responsibility of saints to wash the feet of saints, and if the, the reason for that is because they're dirty because they wear sandals, then it's a sin not to wear sandals, at least when you're going to be around saints, because you won't give them the opportunity to wash your feet. It seems, in other words, to be a little culturally conditioned, right? Second, unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper, this might be more... Uh, definitive for you. The apostolic writings only mention foot washing in the context of widows, 1 Timothy 5. It's never mentioned again in the apostolic writings. Here's 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. They must have had a list of widows that were at least 60 years old because they were trying to minister to them, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has re relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Again, this seems culturally conditioned also, no instructions about foot washing as a requirement for others are given any place. Unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper, which the apostolic writings do address in several places, and in the context of the local church, foot washing is mentioned only here, 1 Timothy chapter 5. So it doesn't seem like the apostles themselves and the early Christians themselves in the New Testament era took these words of Jesus as a perpetual sacrament or ordinance for the church to be conducted by all Christians everywhere throughout the age of the church. Now, did our Lord intend that all subsequent Christians throughout history must wash other disciples' feet or they are in sin. I have never washed, maybe I washed my wife's feet, I don't know, a long time. She's saying definitely no. And I don't know if she's washed my feet, but I don't think I've ever done this. Some of you have done this, gone on a retreat, and you know the leader usually gets down and washes people's feet, just like, I think, the, does the Pope still do that once a year? Washes somebody's feet. He used to do it. You read the 19th century commentaries and all the Protestants are mocking the Pope doing this uh, once a year with people he doesn't even know. Peasants off the street or wherever, I, I don't know. So first of all, this seems like a culturally conditioned uh, illustration that our Lord is using here. Otherwise, it would be a sin for subsequent Christians not to have dirty feet Sandal, dirty sandaled feet, or dirty feeted, footed, sand, however that goes, around other saints so as to give them an opportunity to obey the Lord Jesus. Number two, it's not like baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are instructions in the apostolic writings about baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's only this one section in 1 Timothy 5 about widows. And then thirdly, the external act in the previous section signified something 
than the act itself. Remember, washing, which is an external act, bathing, which is an external act, although he didn't act those at the time, but he talks about those actions themselves. And those signified spiritual realities. So the same goes here, I would say. I'm not the only one. Listen to John Brown. He's a 19th century, century Scot, Scotsman. And you're going to say, well, of course, he's Scottish. They don't, they're not going to wash anyone's feet. They're, you know. They, men wear dresses there, all right? Oops. It is plain, he says, however, from the context that it was not the act, Jesus down there washing their feet, but the principle expressed in it, which our Lord meant to enjoin on his followers. See what he's doing there? He's saying, there's something we need to emulate there, but it's not the mere act itself. The whole principle of our Lord's life was an ever act of powerful tendency in love to serve his brethren of mankind, a self-sacrificing disposition, a readiness to do anything and suffer anything, however degrading in worldly estimation, that was necessary to promote their true happiness. And this disposition was embodied in the emblematic act of washing the feet of the disciples. I think he's right. Here's another 19th century commentator. It is not the act, but the spirit that is to be practiced. It is to be imitated by endeavoring. If a man be overtaken in a fault, to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens, assisting each other by all means in temporal and spiritual progress, and esteeming others better than self. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. You know, there's a lot of one another's in the apostolic writings, right? Where do you think they came from? Don't think too highly of yourself. Put others before you. You read the, we're going to read a section in Romans here pretty soon. You're going to go, I think the apostles got that principle from Jesus. And in a lot of the places, uh, the second half of epistles, there's a lot of those one another's. I, I think I know why. It's the way Jesus lived. Now, if we, you know, what would Jesus do? WW, whatever it was. Do we do what Jesus did in order to be accepted by God and justified by our works? Of course not. But is Jesus an exemplar for his people? Yes, he's not only an exemplar. First, he's our savior, but he's also an exemplar. We are to live like he lived. Here's how our confession puts it. All saints being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. They, they, they have this sharing and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. That's Confession, chapter 27, paragraph 1. I think that's this afternoon I might read the whole chap chapter. It's only two or three paragraphs. It's very illuminating. What chapter? 
that chapter of the communion of saints seeks to tell us is we need to live like Jesus among ourselves. We need to throw off our all attitudes of superiority, starting with me and going down to everyone else in our membership of the saints upon the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. That's a psalm someplace. Of the saints on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. It's like, really, I'm supposed to cherish my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those among our number. By the way, did you see church membership in Colossians 4 while Mario was reading? Um, they are among you. There's a special bond that you have that you don't have with others, but you have it with this one. We are supposed to give ourselves first to the Lord and then to each other. I think that's actually some place as well in the Bible, New Testament. So, so all these one another's that we read about in the New Testament come from the teaching of our Lord, but not just the verbal instruction, but the physical actions as well. And now he's, because it's a monologue, he's telling them, my physical actions teach you spiritual things, but also you should emulate my actions, not the act in and of itself, but the disposition of soul, the posture of soul that it takes to do those kinds of things. And this is staggering. This is the Lord and teacher washing their feet. Listen to Romans 12, 10 through 16. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually, continuing steadfastly in prayer for each other, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. How, what is a healthy church? It's people doing that. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, like I, all that stuff he just said, be like that toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So I don't think this is physical foot washing instituted by our Lord, it's a lot deeper than that. It's giving up your rights, giving up your privileges, giving up your social status, and serving Jesus' sheep. Matter of fact, some of the commentators, uh, none of the Roman Catholics, only the, I only read one Roman Catholic, by the way, is that okay? It's Tommy, big Tommy. Uh, the Protestants were all bringing up the Pope. 
You know, once a year the Pope goes, I don't know where he does. I don't know if he still does this, but apparently he used to do this. They get a dozen or so, a dozen peasants, line them up. The Pope would go down there, wash the feet. And they were mocking it. You know why? Because if that's all it was, that'd be kind of easy. Like you just pinch your nose and go down there, wash the feet. You're going, man, I'm holy. Okay. It's not just an external rite or act that he's telling his disciples they need to do. It's a, it says something in the soul has to gravitate toward lowliness. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Uh, I remember the first time I heard this. I think it was a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon I was reading. The way up in the Christian life is, what does this text tell us? The way down. This is so hard to preach. <laughs> uh, because I have a book. I learned this from a friend of mine. Some of you know this friend. Humility and how I attained it. I, I was being facetious there. Seven principles of humility emulated by me. You know, something like that. It's like, no, don't, don't do that. But this is what he's enjoining upon us, is, is to be like him. Um, verse 16, he gives an enforcement to the inference. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. He goes from, again, the lesser to the greater here. You are servants, the lesser. I am master, the greater. You are sent ones, the lesser. I am the sender, greater. These are the apostles. So first of all, we have to think about what is Jesus say, doing for the apostles themselves? Who are these guys? Well, they would be the foundation of the church at least 11 of these 12, they would be prone to what? Yeah, that's right. Wow. I'm an apostle. What are you? They would be prone to pride. They would be prone to be puffy. Uh, puffy. Where'd you get that from? Not HR puffin stuff and not cereal. Was there puffy cereal or something like that? First Corinthians 8 1, King James Version. Love is not puffy. Something like that. That's a paraphrase. Love isn't all. The soul that loves isn't stuffed with self-love, in other words. If we could peel back the onion of the soul of the incarnate one while he was on the earth, what, we'd see, what would we see in there? Jesus giving himself a high five, you know, in his soul. Jesus with his tongue in his cheek going, <laughs> I'm pretty humble. I'm, matter of fact, I am the epitome of humility incarnate. Was he? Yes, he was. Did he boast about it? No, that's what he's trying to do here. 
He's preparing them, saying, you guys are going to be tempted not to be humble, but you need to be. Most assuredly, some of you know that that is other versions, verily, verily, truly, truly. And in Spanish, it's called amen, amen. That's Greek, by the way. Greek came before Spanish, so you guys stole from the Greeks. Everything good came from the Greeks. Forget it. Amen, amen. What does that mean? Stop. Listen. This is a really important part of my monologue. You are my servants. I am greater than you. If I acted in such a way as to humble myself in order to serve others and without a bad attitude, how much more so you, the lesser toward other lessers. Verily, verily, amen, amen, truly, truly, most assuredly. This is very important, so don't forget it. If the Lord of you and the teacher of you, then certainly you. If me, then you. That's what he's doing here. If the greater toward the lesser, then certainly the lesser toward another lesser. He, by the way, notice how I put that. Let me say it again. If the greater toward the lesser, then certainly the lesser toward another lesser. That's the way we need to view each other as lessers. We don't want to say, well, Jesus was greater and there is lessers. So I'm going to, I'm greater than, you know, so John, uh, which isn't hard to do. uh, So I'll, you know, go stoop down and wash his feet because he's lesser and I'm greater. I don't think that's what we should take from this either, either. Matter of fact, that's the problem in other gospel passages. It probably could be the same scene as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's the greatest, who's the greatest. And Jesus takes them out at the knees for everybody to see. So it's not... I, as a greater, look for a lesser, and then I go serve them and go, I'm like Jesus. I, as a lesser, serve lessers. That's the point he's trying to get at here. He who had no sin served those full of sin who are often, I'm quoting somebody now, averse to this exercise of self-denial and humility, and this though we ourselves are compassed about with infirmities which require forbearance and sympathy and patience from our own brethren. You see what he's saying there? He said, look, we don't like doing this stuff, and yet we forget who we are. Others have to do it for us and toward us. They have to forbear our quirks. None of us have unique idiosyncratic character traits that grate against others, right? We're all cookie cutters. We're all the same. We're all per- You're all like me. No. Here's that Scottish Presbyterian again. Surely we who are but the servants of Christ, should be ashamed to be arrogant and assuming when he, the master, our master, was meek and lowly. So let us, therefore, guard against haughtiness, arrogance, 
self-centeredness and a distaste for serving our brothers and sisters. Let us recall the fact that the Lord, our Lord, washed the disciples' feet. And in this, laid down an example for us to follow in. Now, there's one more point in my sermon. He gives a final conditional benediction. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm going to save that for later. I think we're going to sing a hymn. Before I close in prayer, I want to make sure this is the right hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Listen to these words. If you know these things, cognitive apprehension of truths contained in the text, blessed are you because you know them. He doesn't say that. There's a benediction here conditioned upon the doing of what we know. So here we have, when we walk with the Lord, it's hymn number 700. In the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. We flourish because he's promised us this benediction for the doing. Now, we don't merit, like earn credits with God that get us to heaven, but we do exhibit gracious influences in our soul. What a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I'm not going to rain on that last text there, but I will say this. You ever get miserable as a Christian? discouraged, downtrodden, maybe even despair at times? Go wash someone's feet. Find a saint in need and tend to it. Tell Mario I'm cleaning the toilets for the first six months of 2024. Something like that. Anyway, let's pray. Then we'll sing number 700. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is very uh, much like a knife, cutting, exposing, filleting open our souls and showing us um, the fact that we're, we're, in, we're not glorified, certainly. We have remaining corruption within. We have tendencies to fall back into uh, easy and often. We have self-centeredness sometimes that is a stench to heaven. So we confess all this. Help us to be more other-oriented. Um, we are to do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The apostle said that in Galatians. Help us to have an especial affection toward those in the household of faith. Now help us to sing as well. This hymn has a lot of truth in it. Um, we don't 
obey to get glory. We trust the gospel, we trust the Lord Jesus, and we obey because we're thankful. Make us more thankful and more obedient, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.